Hi, this is Jeff Davis, creator of the hit television show, Teen Wolf, and you're listening to Diminishing Returns. It started as writing, and right from the beginning you knew this was different. Because it was happening in small villages, market towns, and then it wasn't on the TV anymore. It was in the street outside, it was coming through your windows. It was a virus. Before the TV and radio stopped broadcasting, there were reports of infection in Paris and New York. Hi everyone, welcome to Diminishing Returns. It is Halloween. Early. It's not Halloween. <laughs> it is, it's Christmas, Alan. They've got mince pies in the supermarket already. <laughs> I'm fine with that. We 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 we've pretty much had that on this show. Historically, it's been Halloween is October. October is horror month where we talk about horror films non-stop. And that's just because we tend to tie our episodes into new releases coming out in the cinema where we can. And in October yeah. they're all horror films. Now this year, uh the year of coronavirus, it's obviously not something we've been doing nearly as much because there's nothing coming out. But we thought, fuck it, we'll just do a big three-part horror Halloween special anyway. Well, let's 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 set this up right. Let, let's introduce ourselves first. So I'm Alan. Uh, that person over there is Sol. Hello. He's the mental zombie fan. Yes, you are, of course, listening to Diminishing Returns. Yes. That special intro, by the way, was, of course, put together for us by the one, the only, Tomo Fallows. Yeah, it's very nice. So thanks again, Tomo. This is part one of a three-part, three-episode yeah. look at zombie films, specifically kind of George A. Romero's... It's it's uh, George Uwe. A. Romero's Of the Dead franchise. Night yes. of the Living Dead. They're, just, they're often just called The Dead movies, but obviously that's a very generic-sounding name. So specifically, yeah. we are looking at Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Land of the Dead... Diary of the Dead, Survival of the Dead. We will also be covering a few offshoots and, and remakes and yeah. things. That that trilogy, I think I'm correct in saying the only trilogy to be entirely remade with uh, separate remakes that have no <laughs> continuity between one another. <laughs> it's quite an odd distinction. But yeah, in, in order to kind of do it justice, because this, this franchise is often seen as a trilogy, it was a trilogy for... 20 years before they went back to it. Um, we've decided to split it into an episode looking at Night of the Living Dead, which is this week, an episode looking at Dawn of the Dead, and an episode looking at Day of the Dead. And so we didn't have all these extra films at the end making the last episode massive. Uh, we've decided to cover the Romero movies in chronological order of their continuity. So right. the order in which the story happens. What I want to establish um, for people who are not regular listeners is how mental Sol is, um, <laughs> and that he is not just a, a massive zombie fan, possibly okay, yes. the biggest zombie expert on this channel. Um, I, I, right now. <laughs> I, I think it's fair to say, obviously, Calvin is um, known the number one as, Bond YouTube expert. Exactly, he's James Bond expert, Calvin Dyson. Um, I think. 
I don't think it's it's ridiculous to say. I think it's fair to say I am of a comparative level of knowledge with regards to zombie movies and zombie cinema. Um, mm. It is my specialist specialist subject, but I haven't capitalised on it <laughs> in <laughs> in any real way, shape, or form. Yes. Um, so. Specifically, uh, we are covering the George A. Romero Dead movies, as we've said. Uh, This week, we will be looking at Night of the Living Dead and the hundreds of thousands of remakes of Night of the Living Dead that exist. Um, A couple of weeks ago, we covered Murder on the Orient Express, and Alan went away and watched the hundreds of thousands of adaptations of three of that book <laughs> <laughs> no no look we we we, we all I watched, watched the three 74... more than you guys did so. yeah, we, we all watched the sydney lumet film and the kenneth branagh film but alan went away and watched three other versions so he could report back like a little book report and that's what we're doing this week i've <laughs> i've watched these additional for anyone who doesn't know night of the living dead essentially they forgot to put the little copyright symbol on the end credits the distributor uh, back in the 60s, and it immediately lapsed into the public domain as a result. I, I still don't quite understand how that works, because my understanding of licensing law is that you own the copyright over something automatically, but I guess in the 60s it perhaps didn't work that way. Um, but essentially, Night of the Living Dead is in the public domain, so we can remake it right now on this podcast if we want. Ooh. We can definitely drop some unlicensed audio clips in here and don't have to pay <laughs> for it, not like, obviously, we normally pay for all our clips that we use on this show. <laughs> Please support us on Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the point is, anyone can remake Night of the Living Dead, and they seem to have latched onto that around the point that digital filming technology meant that anyone could pick up a camera and make a film. So, about the year 2000, roughly. Uh, I don't know if you know, but Night of the Living Dead was originally conceived of as a sort of dumb comedy. Um, George A. Romero, uh, John John A. Russo, is that his name? John Russo. They're, they're the two main people involved. But, you know, there were, there were a number of people they pulled in. Uh, and they just, yeah, they were just coming up with something they could make, and it was largely written around what they had available to work with. For example, there's a scene in Night of the Living Dead with a kind of official government person being interviewed and they have a nice fancy car and that was written in just because their mate had this car and they were like oh we could (laughs) we could put a couple of flags on your car and say it's the president's car brilliant done you know it it really was that kind of grassroots a bunch of guys just pulling a film together on a shoestring kind of i I like i like that especially when it's the the odd occasion like this when it's done well Yes. Uh, and it kind of rises above. It's not just some idiots doing so. It's people who obviously know mm. how to put a film together. But then I, yeah. I guess it's similar to say what Sam Raimi does early in his stuff. It's like they don't quite know all the rules, and so they don't yeah. follow the rules, and so you end up getting. But if they've got a good visual idea or mm. a good creative mind or whatever, they make something that works. But it works in a way that you've not really seen before. So they they wrote the film, uh, and it was called Monster Flick, to give you an idea of how seriously they were taking it. Um, and it was about some aliens who who came to Earth, befriended some teenagers. Um, somewhere along the way, it seemed to become more 
horror focus than comedy, and it involved a sequence involving a load of reanimated uh, human corpses that were used for food by the aliens. I don't quite know how that worked, but they decided it would be recently dead only, purely because of budgetary reasons with, yeah, having people come out of the ground and the special effects involved. And it was it was uh, John A. Rousseau's idea that they would eat flesh as well, they would be cannibalistic. So, kind of his doing, really, not George A. Romero, <laughs> as much as George A. Romero is the man <laughs> remembered for the zombie, uh, as we know it. And I think, like I say, largely due to production reasons more than anything, that turned into Night of the Living Dead, which is a not only you know not a horror comedy but it's it's quite starkly i would say the most serious film in the entire series george a. romero has mm. a sense of humor and it comes across in the sequels to this film but i don't think it really has any yeah. humor about it this uh film it's it's a yeah, I agree. bleak film and i i think that's partly born out of the time in which it's made uh, the, these films are renowned for being a snapshot of an era and George A. Romero kind of commenting on the, the world at the time and you know I, I don't think I really was aware of it when I was younger to the extent that I am now but Night of the Living Dead is is so of the Vietnam War it's you know it's a bunch of people who've gone off to Vietnam and seen horrible horrible things and um, you know, quite literally in Tom Savini's case, he he was a war photographer, is that right, Alan? We were talking about this the other day. Yeah, on... something like that, yeah. Yeah. Um, Tom Savini, of course, did the makeup for the film. Yeah, I just think aesthetically, the film has a real gritty documentary feel about it, which... I think must be from watching all these, you know, newsreels of Vietnam atrocities going on at the time. I did note that, considering like the low budget nature, or almost very limited equipment or whatever, they do manage to make it feel quite cinematic. Oh and yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. the way it's shot, like you know, little Dutch angles shooting from the ground up, mm. or uh, lots of little, just little things like that that are not overused and feel gimmicky. But it, and then sometimes going in for this real sort of tight close up, making yeah. it feel very claustrophobic. Yeah, but it, it really all works. And oh yeah, yeah, I, I think your I think your comparison to Sam Raimi is quite apt because there you know there are sequences where the film goes out of focus. There are a couple of instances where they jump cut. I think in the middle of a shot, <laughs> like it it's it is messily put together in certain ways. But then the the composition of the shots and the lighting, like the that side of the cinematography, not the technical aspect of it, but the more artistically driven, is remarkable. This is it. It it it's got the makings of an incredibly cheesy, silly film. But I think it largely plays sincerely as intended, with maybe a couple of exceptions. And I, I suppose any shortcomings on that front are down to the performances uh, more than anything because they're they're working with (laughs) yeah they're they're working with unknown actors but you know all things considered I think they've got a pretty good cast here Uh, Dwayne Jones is the the lead playing Ben who was a a notable casting decision I mean this is another reason why I love George A. Romero and it's really cemented for me on you know rewatching all these films is the guy was such a 
such a fucking hippie beatnik. He was such a just a guy of the sixties riding this <laughs> wave of of revolution. And and this film and you know his filmography, it's all about like revolution, man. And but he has landed on the right side of history with pretty much everything, like really firmly. Uh, Dwayne Jones uh, is of course a, a black man who plays Ben. Night of the Living Dead therefore has a black protagonist, which was almost unheard of in 1968. It's basically unheard of now. Yeah, certainly for a film that isn't about the you know the plight of the black man or what have you. Like it's not, it's nothing. It's just a man who happens to be black who's in this film, and they they've said as much. You know, they they wrote the character as a white man, not really thinking about it. Dwayne Jones was just the best guy who turned up to audition, and they hired him. But the fact can, that they... You can tell that, though. You can yeah. you can tell that that's, it's not Completely. written. <clears throat> because, yeah, there would be numerous references to it. The way the other characters would interact with him would mm. be different. You can tell it's not written into the script like that. Yeah, he he never says anything like... He never says, we don't want your kind around here, or anything like that or your kind can't be trusted, which would have been the obvious sort of division to put there. It's just two people. But then the fact that they cast Dwayne Jones and didn't go back and change it, and were like, no, this is, you know, on a human level, that says something. Mm. Um, so I think, yeah, arguably, it, it, there's definitely politics to it, but the ending specifically, I think, is often misread as a specifically racial thing, and I think it's perhaps more about the atrocities of war in a general sense. Um, yeah, I definitely felt like that, you put a white man in that part, and it the film does not change. Like you, mm. I, I don't think it, it is saying anything about that. Yeah. The fact that you put a black man in, a, in his lead role of a film, protagonist of the film at that time, is saying yeah. something. Well, like I say, it's 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 more loaded now in the current climate than it has ever been, I would say. Um, because it's, you know, it's happening on a daily basis where innocent black people are being shot dead for basically no reason. And it's it's just people shooting first before they take a second to ascertain what the situation is. And that's what this is at the end. It's these people just shoot without taking a second to to check what they're doing and i i think it's actually i think it's an incredibly powerful fantastic ending but plus then the what what the to a large extent and you see this in some of the other films as well the zombies themselves are mm. something of a macguffin it's just something to trap yes. these people together so that they have to he- butt yeah. heads and, and yeah. deal with each other deal with a common well threat. that that is the 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 you know and we're, we're hardly covering new ground by saying this, but that is pretty much the thesis of the George A. Romero films. The The real monster is man. The zombies aren't a threat. If everyone worked together, it wouldn't be a problem. But you've got to be worried about the other people you encounter along the way, and they're, they're the real issue. And that gets explored in a variety of ways across this franchise. But, yeah. It, it, yeah. Oh, oh, hello. Someone at the door. Oh god! It's a bit no. early for that, isn't it? Alan? Right. Just, <laughs> Usually rings the bell. Was. Let me just go. Uh... Hello. Hang on. There's no one. No one at the door. There's no one there, Alan. Oh god! The, the the knock was coming from inside the house. I'm in here. 
What? That's very strange. What is happening? <laughs> oh, get, get, get your foot off the hatch, Alan. Oh, God. God. Oh, what? Oh. Oh, it... <laughs> it was the front door. It was the... The hatch <laughs> to the basement. It was, it was the hatch that Alan was stood on. So Calvin, I couldn't get out. Hello. Calvin, what are, Calvin you doing what are you doing here? I almost hit you with this chair leg on fire that I have. I heard have. noises um, and I, I just hid in here. Um, I, I didn't realise <laughs> it was you. What, you didn't You didn't think to come up and check we were okay or anything? <laughs> we, we could have been no. being attacked by a Japanese bomb. Yeah. Now, well, I'm, I'm, I'm here now. So, uh, what were you uh, talking about? We, coincidentally enough, weirdly enough, we're talking about Night of the Living Dead. Oh, that's interesting. I watched that recently, and I uh, think I overheard parts of your conversation that I just assumed was zombies talking about Night of the Living Dead, so I can uh, seamlessly oh. join in. <laughs> oh, God. What, what an amazing transition. I didn't know we had a hatch. Yeah, I didn't that's, even know we had a basement. New... How long has that been down there? Yeah. Have you got an injured child in there with you, Calvin? Mm, I, I I listen in from there when you've got other guests on. Oh, that's where I stay. Well, now you're here, Calvin. Yes. Would you like to join in the conversation? We're talking about oh, thank you. zombie films. Sounds good. Well, we've already done the preamble. We're, we're talking about Night of the Living Dead now. You're going to have to jump straight in. That's fine. So, can can we focus in a little bit uh let's talk about this film and kind of look at some scenes specifically because i want to okay. i want to get down to it so uh, one of my one of my first notes was that w- one of the zombies picks up a brick and uses it to smash the car window mm. which yes. is immediately like that's more kind of intelligence tool use than i think of as zombies like well, i think you... zombies is very <laughs> kind of don't know what they're doing at all you alan spoke about how this is quite a messy film and they hadn't figured out the rules yet. You were talking, yeah. of course, about the rules of filmmaking, uh, <laughs> but they also hadn't figured out the rules of zombies yet. They Obviously, <laughs> yeah. they were inventing zombies as we know them. So in this film, yeah, they, they do think and reason and use tools. And that first zombie is pretty fast on his feet. He's basically running. By Dawn of the Dead, the next one, they kind of establish a bit firmly what zombies are they're slow and shambolic and they don't really work that way but yeah the first zombie is smart enough to pick up a rock or a brick or whatever it is to smash a window after realizing it can't get through the glass and it's pretty fast and and i love that zombie he's such a creepy looking man (laughs) (laughs) he he always reminds me of tom kenny the voice of spongebob squarepants (laughs) which is probably a very niche reference Okay, my next my next note, and this is going to lead us on to a bigger issue in the film. My next note was, Barbara does not cope well under pressure. <laughs> okay, so, uh, talking about things aging and, and George Romero coming out on the right side of history. <laughs> yeah. The portrayal of women in this film, the female representation, not great. It's <laughs> not strong. <laughs> there, there are women in this film. There's... More women than men in our primary group of... uh... Yeah, it's not an issue of representation in that sense, but Barbara is immediately knocked out from, from like, being anything resembling a useful character. She's hysterical throughout the film, and it does just feel like a very 1960s 
look at this stupid woman who can't cope with all the carnage. We need the men to come in and yeah. One of my one of my other notes is only with an open hand because he has to give <laughs> her a little slap just to just to shake her out of her stupor at one point. Hmm. <laughs> but of course, you know they they basically made a remake that we'll talk about a bit later to like almost yeah. atone for these sins. So you know, I, I, I'm not <laughs> well, let me let me tell you what right about Barbara. I really like that character. I think. It's a character yeah. that you don't really see very often in these yeah. kinds of films. Someone who's just in total shock and just I, I completely agree. And is and is therefore a big bloody anchor around your neck. There's a scene near the beginning where it's just Ben and Barbara in the house, and like he and this is the great acting performance. Like he just cannot hide his contempt for her. First, because yeah. she's just not saying anything. He's like, "Oh my god, what's wrong with you?" <laughs> and then when she starts talking, she's just rabbiting on about like, "Oh, and then this happened, and this happened, this happened," and he's like. Just shut up, love. All right, <laughs> just, just <laughs> like that's even more annoying. Mm. But I really like that because he's she's a problem. She is a, an issue for him, yeah. and it'd be so much easier if she wasn't there. But he does kind of like okay. Well, I better look after her, make sure she's all right. I I, I do admit I like it insofar as you're right. You don't really see that character very much anymore. Certainly not as the second lead character yeah like yeah. a hero if if you have that character now it will usually be someone who's an antagonist really yeah, rather yeah, yeah. than someone who's set up as a hero to root for or just the way it would it be played like you, someone being hysterical or or being just acting out and, and then have it but she's just in shock and it, it's it's actually a really good representation of someone in shock mm. and i uh, yeah, I, like I, I think it's just unfortunate that she's the one notable substantial female role in the film and everyone else is a, a strong man who's coping yeah, with the situation it, in it their would own help way. if they had other female roles yeah, that counterbalanced yeah. it yeah but but like just just for, as a character i really liked it and that that there's like what is it 30 minutes before the other characters come in it yeah, it's just yeah. the two of them in the house yeah it there's yeah there's all this, um, it's very talky at times, which is really unusual yes, in films. Yes, it feels yes. like, it really felt like a radio play a lot of Yeah, time. I had the same thought I did, yeah. Because, you know, he's talking about where he's come from, but it felt so real. If you just got two people who smashed together and they were like, well, what happened? where did you come from? And then she's not talking. Oh man, I really liked it. I really loved all that bit. And there's a point early on where they're talking and it's blat- It's the most blatant case I can think of, of we don't have the budget to film this, so let's just tell this incredible <laughs> tell elaborate story. <laughs> I guess the driver must have cut off the road into that gas station by Beekman's Diner. It went right through the billboard, ripped over a gas pump and never stopped moving. By now it's like a moving bonfire. didn't know if the truck was going to explode or what. As I say, I think this film's got a very documentary feel about it. Yeah. And I think that's lost in the subsequent films in this series. And I think that makes it feel real. There's no money behind this film. Um, you know, I can't stress that enough. It was made on a budget of $114,000, which equates to about $838,000 in today's money. Hmm. So, Righteous you know, that that's, that's, that's more money than I've ever had to make a film with. But... <laughs> It's not a lot of money, <laughs> you know. It's it's mm. it's um it's peanuts for a film. You make a film for 
a million dollars now, and that is astonishing. I think the they use it really well, though. Like, this is a film with, like, you know, pyrotechnics and an explosion and a, a, a big cast of extras and makeup and all that kind of stuff. And I think they yeah. really, they, they use the money that they have incredibly well. It, it, I, I think, you know, it's certainly shot in a kind of, you know, I was reminded a bit of Pink Flamingos, John Waters in a couple of uh, mm. points. But not not in a bad way, necessarily. But you can tell that it's not a professional product in that sense. But uh, yeah, in terms yeah. of the production values, um, what they put on screen, I think they do very well. Yeah, and another element, especially in those early bits where there's only the two characters and one of them's not talking, mm. there's... there's um, there's quite a lot where they just put a score over the top of it and it feels like watching a silent film because, you know, the sound mix isn't mm. like perfect. So you're losing a lot of the ambient, like the, yeah, well, the diegetic yeah. sound. So it just feels like it's music. They're running around. They're like chasing a zombie. Mm. But the, and the score, it's like 60s TV score, but emulating 30s horror score. It's, it's <laughs> a really cool, interesting thing. <laughs> See, I really don't like the score. I wish it had had more of a that done more of a like a Halloween before Halloween or even Psycho something something mm. that wasn't this kind of nineteen fifties monster movie because everything that I'm yeah. seeing is better than that. I was going to ask you <laughs> yeah, all actually where I, the music I, I, came I, from if it was just a public domain thing that Romero yeah, had to it is, it's it's just library music okay. they dug yeah. out. Um, I think they might have paid for it, but it's it wasn't composed for the film. But it's it's very just like electronic kind of like Mm. it's very minimalistic noise really for the most part it's not exactly music in the sense that we typically think of I guess it's quite John Carpenter in a lot of ways but obviously less overtly electronic Mm. so can we just talk about the other characters a little bit Mm. so they, um, Ben and Barbara have been in this house for quite a while. They, ben is trying to knock some boards up against the window, trying to make it safe. So yeah, it's, we're we're quite a significant way into the film when all of a sudden, from the basement, there's five new characters, or sort of four characters and a comatose young girl. I think it's perfect pacing, though. It's that classic thing of okay, we've got as far into this story as we can, as is. Something's got we to need happen. an injection of something uh, before all the zombies get in at the end or whatever. Mm. Let's just chuck these characters in and, and keep things moving. And I really like that they don't just turn up outside, like, begging to come in, which is quite a common thing in, in films. I, I like that it's a bit more... They've kind of laid claim to this... Uh, house already, and so the people we're following are encroaching on them rather than. But they've been there long enough, so it immediately gives us this power play between the two alpha males, and it is, you know, it is a very macho bullshittery uh, (laughs) feel to the whole thing by design, though. Yeah, 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 yeah. The interesting thing there 
is they they go up against each other straight away and it's pretty much throughout the whole thing but what what i found interesting as much as we're on ben's side and this mr cooper is a bit of a knob ultimately though it's ben isn't right like staying up there and boarding all those windows there's about 42 points of entry for these zombies to get at them <laughs> And and ultimately, you know, what do they do? They go back down. They go down to the basement. By you know, when all these zombies kick in. Well, I I have to no. I I think Ben is right. Well, I, I guess my point is, it's not a it's not an, a simple cut and dry argument. Yeah, yeah. You can see why the guy wants to go down the basement. It does make yeah. sense his side. As but well. I I think to be honest, I don't know why they don't go upstairs and like smash up the stairs. That seems like the sensible fallback. But I think it makes perfect sense from Ben's point of view that you leave the basement as a fallback That's last your panic resort. Room, yeah. yeah, you don't just immediately retreat to your panic room. You you have different lines of defence that you hold as long as you can. So I do think he has a point, but I do yeah, quite on like the other the, hand... Um, portrayal of Mr. Cooper, though, just to touch on sort of what Alan was just saying about he's mm. not like... If this were a modern film, I'm sure they'd make him the most unlikable person. They'd make him a real antagonist. Well, um, yeah, have you have you seen the 90s remake, Calvin? <laughs> no, I have not. So, okay, interesting. <laughs> because here they actually they like they have that scene with him and his wife and the daughter down in the, in the cellar and they're just chatting and his wife saying something to the effect of, oh, chill out or something like that. And it's... Uh, I don't get the sense that he's a very nice husband for her to be with, yeah. but um, I don't know, he felt more human than those kinds of characters normally do in these things. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I, I think it would be so easy to make him a complete caricature of, of what they're doing, and I think he's actually quite rounded for what he is. I, I think he works really mm. well as a character. Mm. But then also the the wife there, um, he she is the closest thing we get to a strong female, yeah, she, she's kind of put upon by this asshole husband, but she's not afraid to kind of go back yeah. at him, is she? It's just that she spends most of the film by her daughter's side, yeah. so you don't really mm. see her. She's down in the basement for most of the film. But yeah, when she talks, she's every bit as strong a character as anyone. And I, I think that also comes into Mr. Cooper's character, the fact that we, we kind of... It's a, it's a sort of... We're a, they've already started arguing when we find out, oh, he's got a little girl down there who's hurt. Mm. And that, that immediately kind of like, okay, well, we understand why he's panicking a little bit more and, and like why he's really wound up. Because the first thing that they get in about is like, what, you were in the basement the whole time? Didn't you hear us screaming and like trying to fight people? Like, why didn't you come and help? And mm. uh, but like also not unreasonable for him to go. Hey, let's not go up there. It's obviously dangerous. Mm. Yeah. So I do see both sides, and I think that's good. I think yeah, that's really yeah, nicely yeah. done. But yeah, ultimately Ben is the kind of more heroic figure, and he's the good guy. Mm. And then the other two characters we have are Tom and Judy, who are just a young couple who are on the way up to uh, make out point or whatever, and they end up trapped here as well. And you know, that's interesting. You've got the third male character there, but he's much more kind of like, oh, well, I'll just sort of do what I'm told, I suppose. But then you've got this other female character there you don't really do anything with, and then she just becomes a total tit mm. and <laughs> kind of just runs out of the door when really it's not a good idea. Um, that's the character, that's the sort of the weakest character is Judy, I think. And yeah, definitely could have done more with that or made it more interesting somehow. But I, I get the sense that they are there for body count. I think there is a, and you could just do this with 
even Barbara, to be honest, I mean, she doesn't do a whole lot after the first half an hour. Uh, maybe it could have just been Ben and the Coopers in this house, but uh, <laughs> I like that Barbara is here. I do like her and everything mm. that you were saying about a very realistic sort of feeling portrayal of someone mm. in just completely catatonic state. And the, it does give you that great moment at the end when she sees that her brother has become one of the zombies as well. And that's sort of what uh, is Aram doing, really. Repeated in Shaun of the Dead, isn't it? With uh, oh yeah, what's her name? Lucy Davis going mad, running out after David gets eaten. Um, there is one more element that we need to address uh, specifically, I think, um, and that is the use of news clips, radio slash television bulletins. My favorite part of the film, I would say. I, I, but they're 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 really effective here i think because they offer you a window into the chaos happening in the rest of the world we're only seeing a very specific sliver like a real snapshot of this zombie apocalypse and i think the news bulletins allow a view of you know this from a wider societal perspective when first reports began filtering in, newsmen and law enforcement agencies were of the opinion... This place is boarded up pretty solid now. In nature. However, as these we ought to be all right here for a while. Dramatically, it was soon apparent that we have a gun and bullets, food and the radio. Kind of Sooner or later, someone's bound to come and get us out. Creatures from outer space. So again, we join with law enforcement agencies urging you to seek shelter in a building. Lock the doors and windows securely. Hey, that's us. We're doing all right. Cautious of any suspicious strangers. And keep tuned to your radio and television for survival instructions and further details of this continuing story. Well, yeah, it is real exposition stuff, but the way that it's woven in makes it feel okay. It feels natural. It kind of it, there's not a lot of information to give because it's not explaining what's happening. And well, that's that's the other thing. They never actually explain what caused the uh, zombies to rise. Which was a a big bone of contention, I think, for me as a kid. I I, I wasn't sure I felt about... I, I, I don't know, I always kind of felt like it was a cop-out. But then at the same time, any reason they give is open to scrutiny, and there is no reason that could realistically bring the dead yeah. to life. So it's better to give nothing. And they do give a... They, you know, they, they heavily imply it's down to radiation from a, a downed satellite in one of the news reports. Mm. So... They basically say to you, look, we could have said it was this. We're not <laughs> going to say it's that because it's silly, but there's your reason if you need one. And I think it's I think that's the best possible way of handling it. It's it's really good mm. economical filmmaking. I can talk about um, a scene that I the, the only other scene that I really wanted to talk about, uh the scene where uh the little girl uh, the bit where she's uh, kills her mother in the cellar is just re- the sound design. I don't quite know what they did to the mum's screams during that oh, sequence, God, but yeah, it's, it's really because it's weird. not. They don't have the kind of hammy music over it. It's just the screams and the trowel and uh, stabbing. It's really fantastic. I love that scene. It's, it goes very shrill, and there's a sort of echo applied to it. It's, mm. Yeah, it's quite. Mm. <laughs>
Of course, another example of a zombie using a tool in this film. The daughter kills with a trowel rather mm. than just biting yeah. the mother. One of the more iconic moments in the film. She, you know, she she is the poster in a lot of uh, places. Oh, yeah. Shall we rate? I guess so, yeah. I don't really have anything else to say about it. So, you know, I, I think it's an incredible incredible film incredibly influential i i would argue one of the most influential films in cinema history to be honest i i'd struggle to think of a film that's had more clear cut reach than this one and i think beyond that because you know sometimes things like that don't necessarily age all that well but i think this is still a terrific piece of entertainment and i think it's a very effective horror film you know i, I think it really works what it's trying to do so I, I'm giving it a 10 out of 10. I, I think it's really incredible. Hmm. Well, I I think it... Obviously, it has aged. Like, But when I watch this, I'm... And I think it helps that it's black and white and this kind of low-budget thing. It feels like it was made a long time ago. You know, it, it feels in a particular time. And so yeah. I'm happy to see it in that time. And so there's certain elements that you kind of go, okay, that was the 60s, it's all right. Um, but <laughs> what I love about low-budget things are how easily i will accept these flaws like slightly wonky acting and stuff like that if it's done well if it's like a story yeah. told well yeah anyway basically my point is that i don't feel like i'm having to make allowances for this i feel like yeah. i am enjoying it on the actual level that it is supposed to be uh i liked it a lot i think it was a great piece of filmmaking and as you say the legacy and all that i'm going to give it a nine out of ten Wow. Uh, well, no, I, I'm going to continue on with the uh, positives. I really do love th- some of the horror films this era, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of my favorite films. And I just love the kind of gritty quality that, I mean, they have to be made well, obviously. Like, obviously, mm. there are so many films of the time. Like, I'm thinking of uh, Last House on the Left, for example, which is of that same ilk and that same kind yes. of low budget, yeah. a bunch of. You know, people going, getting some camera gear and not real actors and all that kind of stuff and making a film uh, where I think, I think Night of the Living Dead and Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, 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 succeed way beyond a lot of their peers. And I, you can point to maybe things that are not necessarily intended or what happened accidentally or just a limitation of the equipment that they had, the budget they had, whatever, but the fact that they made what they made and it was so fantastic speaks volumes, I think, and I'm just really appreciative that we have films like that uh, uh, today and that it kind of survived, I guess, um, given all of the rights issues. Just before you give your rating, I just want to pick up on what you said there. I, you just made me think of something. I don't think I watched this film as like, oh, this is a horror film. I really like the horror elements because I don't, I don't like horror films particularly. Hmm. What, what really made me enjoy this film is, is the character stuff, that kind of psychological hmm. interplay between them all. Put that hmm. into a yeah. horror context, and I'm fine with that. Whereas, as a straight horror. Like to be fair, I haven't seen it for a long time, but something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Last House on the Left, the kind of gritty horror nature of it doesn't get to me at all. Doesn't do anything for me. Mm. It's mm. this character-driven stuff that really works for me. Can mm. I can I just pick up on something you said as well, Calvin? Yeah, which sure. is the um, the kind of gritty feel of films from this era. Mm. Obviously, it's partly down to it being done well, and I don't want to take a, away from that at all, but. Mm. 
I think there is something to be said for low-quality film stock being infinitely superior to low-quality digital filmmaking. Completely. As we're going to get into in a bit, I watched the many, many remakes of this film, which are, of course, largely digital. And I can tell you that a bunch of people pulling together a film on a hundred grand with digital filmmaking techniques it just doesn't compare in terms of quality in terms of atmosphere in terms of tone in terms of creating a a visceral response to what you're watching it just just doesn't work and it's not like the cinematography in this film is technically remarkable hmm. it's just capturing that kind of artistic I I don't know I don't know it's just yeah no I agree there's just some sh- there's like oh there's a shot that I really like where it's Barbara and she runs to the phone and it's kind of like a, a bit of a Dutch angle and there's just this weird mm. thing on the wall behind her I think it's like an animal <laughs> yeah. print or something it's a really strange but just how they've composed that shot just looks real I I yeah. do love that still Anyway, uh, it's a 9 out of 10 from me. The only drawbacks for me are, I think the, I think it's a shame about the music, and I would really love it if, you know, there was a more minimalist kind of score on here. And I think that some of the character stuff in the middle, particularly with the younger characters, the, uh, the young couple, some of that is a bit grating. Um, I like Ben, Barbara, and the Coopers. Uh, but yeah, just a few drawbacks, but it's it's a phenomenal bit of work. Love it. Wow. That makes Night of the Living Dead our third highest rated film on the podcast of all time. Joint wow. third place with Jurassic Park, I believe. Wow. That's quite um, quite remarkable. I didn't think it would get that high. Mm. Calvin, you, you just mentioned the music, and yes. I'm going to pick you up on uh, something to do with that in just a second. But before oh. we get to that, uh, I'm going to take the opportunity to plug... Uh, what you might know as Development Hell, uh, ah. the sort of side podcast that I started. It's not called Development Hell anymore. Oh! Um, it's it's changed its name, everyone, to How Didn't This Get Made? Ah. Uh, the reason being, I, I pitched a show very similar, also called Development Hell, to iHeartRadio, hmm. uh, which is now in... It's now going to pilot... Oh. Uh, for their their next great podcast thing, so oh, that's exciting. To, to have, yeah, yeah. So look look out for another thing called Development Hell from me in the future because I might need you all to go vote for it. But um... are you, are you <laughs> a, a fully fledged professional podcast producer now? Yeah, I, I'm I'm gonna get a budget from them to make it, and uh, Jesus, the, uh, hope you know they they might. It'll be between that and nine other podcasts. They'll be, you know, commissioning one of them to make it an actual show. So, but the, I'm bringing it up because I'm not going to bore you guys with the hundreds of thousands of uh, Night of the Living Dead offshoots that exist, sequels, unofficial sequels, remakes, and things. I'm going to be very uh, concise and try and trim it down a bit because I. <laughs> have an episode of How Didn't This Get Made going out all about the hundreds of thousands of uh, potential sequels to to mm. these films, which George Romero and friends never managed to get off the ground. So that should be out by the time you listen to this. If not, it'll be like next week's episode. So go, go and check that out. Go subscribe to How Didn't This Get Made. 
Go to dimreturns.com. There's links to everything there. <laughs> but Calvin was just talking about music for yes. Night of the Living Dead. I didn't like it. <laughs> so you might like Calvin. Oh. The 30th anniversary re... It, I don't know what you call it. It's just called Night of the Living Dead 30th Anniversary Edition, I think. Is this the one where they filmed, like, an extended opening or something? They did new stuff to yeah. it, right? Yeah. Yeah. John A. Russo, in 1999, uh, attempting to make a bit of money off this film, in the same way that George A. Romero and everyone had kind of capitalised on it with sequels, he thought, you know what? I'm going to make a straight-up direct sequel to Night of the Living Dead myself, separate to George A. Romero's films, but in order to kind of get people primed and build up a bit of anticipation and and what have you, he decided to re-edit Night of the Living Dead. Mm. Which So his version is basically Night of the Living Dead with about... It's about 15 minutes taken out of it, and about 15 minutes of new material put in in their place. And Calvin, an entirely new score composed Ooh. specifically for the film. Oh, okay. Is it good? No, sadly, it's absolutely terrible. Oh. Uh, <laughs> the score's fine. There's nothing wrong with the score. It's just very 90s horror generic. Uh, so you might prefer that. But the new sequences are... There's a prolonged bit at the start that explains where that first zombie came from which mm. none of us needed to see, I'm sure. Nope. Uh, and it's the the acting is abysmal. Mm. I don't know what... They're, they're going to the funeral of this man who was executed. He was a murderer. And, you know, all the police are there like, open up the coffin. I want to make sure he's dead so I can spit on him before he goes in the ground. And there's a preacher there who is appalling and it is the guy who played the zombie. I think it's the same actor reprising the role of that zombie 30 years on. <laughs> uh, which is funny, because the zombie <laughs> looks like de-ages 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> he seems more sprightly uh, than the guy when he was alive. Yeah. But basically you see, you know, they're, they're there giving a about to give the funeral, up jumps the zombie, another zombie turns up, attacks them, they run off we cut to Barbara and Johnny being attacked by the zombie. Completely pointless. Detracts from the film because it's so badly edited, like shot and acted and put together mm. and cheap. Uh, then there are extended sequences of zombie carnage. These aren't bad, actually. If, if, if that's something you care about, you get to see a, a one-armed zombie like 1950s diner waitress walking around. Um, yeah, they're fine. They blend in quite well. And then there's a an ending on the film with that preacher coming back from the start. And basically, there's a new... Oh yeah, there's more news reporter uh, stuff added in as well with a new news reporter woman character. Uh, and at the end, she's interviewing that preacher because he was bitten on the face and didn't turn into a zombie. And he claims it's because the zombies are a demonic entity and he's close to God, therefore he was spared and didn't allow the demons into his body. And for some reason he's got like a little handbag dog, like a little tiny 
um, fluffy, poodly thing on his lap when he's doing this, which is bizarre. And it's just a bizarre ending. It's like, is this... Are we meant to take that at face value? Are you trying to make some comment about religious fanaticism I don't get? It, it's just bizarre. So avoid the 30th anniversary version. Um, but more than the 30th anniversary version, avoid the sequel it spawned, Children of the Living Dead, which is abysmal. Um, so John A. Russo and George A. Romero both wrote Night of the Living Dead. They didn't continue working with each other on the sequels. I, I think they had an amicable split. I don't think there was any bad blood particularly, but they agreed that George Romero would get the of the dead name and mm. John A. Russo would get the arguably the better deal of the living dead, mm. which was, you know, more clearly tied to Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. And he's been trying to capitalize on it ever since. He he wrote a book a sequel back in the day called Children of the Living Dead. He um, kickstarted the Return of the Living Dead. In fact, I think Return of the Living Dead was a book he wrote as well. And then obviously that turned into the Return of the Living Dead movies, which we'll cover at some point on this podcast, I'm sure, but probably not for a while. And um, at some point he went back and made Children of the Living Dead, and it is abysmal. Tom Savini is in it, but it is it's hard to watch. It is, you know made for no money by people who aren't as talented as the people making Night of the Living Dead. It, mm. It's just difficult to watch. I have nothing really to add to it. I mean, it's it's one of the few films I've ever given a 1 out of 10 to. Um, <laughs> and there's going to be some more of those today, guys! <laughs> so, um, anyway, that's, that's a little tangent about the anniversary version, the offshoot. Uh, but before either of those... George A. Romero himself had a, a similar kind of idea about making a bit of money off the franchise. He and Tom Savini, the makeup guy, partnered up again to produce a remake of the film themselves, the 1990 Night of the Living Dead, uh, which you've watched, Alan, yeah? Yeah. I'm sure you're not going to be as positive about it. <laughs> I think it's an admirable effort mm. to make a new version of this film. It's not something anyone was really asking for. I think it's very watchable, very entertaining on a kind of base level. It's not a bad film. It is I mean when you when you're remaking a classic like that, it's a poison chalice obviously, but I think there's the scope here because of the the limitations that were on Night of the Living Dead to do it in a kind of slightly new more modern context. Yes. Um, the remake was written by George Romero. He wrote the screenplay. Tom Savini made his, I think, his directorial debut. I looked at that. Yeah, it, oh, the only film he's directed, really, proper film. Anyway. Yeah, and and you, it's not a bad job of it, really, for a first-time director. Um, and also, notably, it stars Tony Todd, who we would have been covering <laughs> in quite a bit of depth on this podcast had Candyman not been delayed into 2021. Uh, but yeah, Tony Todd, Candyman himself as Ben. Pre-Candyman, though. It is, although he does carry a, a like a hook thing around at one point, which is <laughs> an odd little detail. Calvin, I, I think it's a shame you haven't seen this one, because my assumption is you would love this film and you might even like it more than the original. Oh. Do you know what I mean, Alan? 
I do, yeah. It just I kind of has yeah. it just kind of has that Calvin vibe about it where Ooh, okay. I'm you know what, I'm gonna watch it and I will report back on the next instalment of this <laughs> uh, series. Calvin, I, I do I think you're gonna love it, mainly because the biggest difference between this film and the original is the character of Barbara. Hmm. It feels as though it's a very conscious decision on their part to not have a, a silly, cowering woman who is delirious and no use to anyone. And it's clearly inspired by the contemporary films that have been coming out the years before it. It's from 1990, so, you know, Alien. hot on the heels of Terminator. Aliens and Terminator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Barbara basically is a full-on, like, action badass in this film. It's oh. it's ridiculous. She, she starts off as a kind of bookish librarian with a pair of glasses, but by the end she's gone full Rambo with, like, a... You know, thing tied around her head and gun toting, and yeah. And the, the woman playing her, Patricia Talman, I looked her up. His was at the time certainly more of a stunt uh, performer than an really, actor. yeah, right. th- yeah. A whole litany of stunts prior to this, but has done p- plenty of acting as well. I think she does a great job of. It's quite a hard transition to sell because she starts off the film like the other Barbara, just terrified. But she does go to this hardened Sarah Connor figure by the end of it. And that's a very difficult transition to sell. I think she does yeah. a remarkable job of helping to sell that. I think it paces out quite well as well. She sort of like, she goes into that shock mode and then she kind of snaps out of it and goes, okay, well, if this is what we're doing, this is what I've got to do. And yeah. and she, but yeah, she does change. You see the change yeah. as you go along. One other big notable miss, as far as I'm concerned, is they don't really have the news footage stuff. There's a couple yeah. of little moments, but you don't really get radio and TV stuff. I think that's... Uh, I, I could see why you might chop that down, but it just seems mm. to get lost altogether. I think that there are one or two sequences, but it's it's not nearly as much. I think maybe they just felt like after making Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead, they'd you know moved on to a new approach with it, maybe? I, I don't know. Dawn of the Dead is, of course, set in a newsroom at the start, so it's got a lot of that in there up front. Um, so uh, we were talking earlier about the Mr. Cooper, Harry Cooper character, yes. who, how in that first film, like, he could be a lot more of a kind of caricature arsehole. Well, that's pretty much what they do in this one. <laughs> you will see with these films, George Romero's writing style, he's not afraid of two-dimensional, <laughs> like, thinly-drawn characters who have, like, mm-hmm. one overbearing personality trait, which is all they have about them, and that's it. And, to give him credit, I think it largely works to make very effectively, economically entertaining films, for the most part. But, it's not as good as writing a really good, really, you know, fully-fleshed-out, three-dimensional character. Now, Night of the Living Dead, the original, kind of worked in spite of this. It came down on the right, the right line, I think, the right side of silly and two-dimensional. This film is just full-on. Cooper is just, like, it's just unrealistic, isn't it? How, how unlike okay. it is. It's, it's just no one would be that much of a dickhead. Hmm. <laughs> there are some significant differences to the ending. Well, I think the ending is born out of that, and maybe they really felt they had to dial him up as a dickhead to get the ending to work. 
Yeah, no, it didn't it work does. for me. <laughs> yeah, it didn't work for me. Um, the, so the big change. Um, should we? Mm, do we want to spoil this for Calvin, or should we? Let no, let's let's save it for next week. We'll, 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 okay, we'll come back to it and touch on this before we start next week. So they oh, okay. they changed the ending, but that's a pin on a pin on it, a pin in it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so come back for discussion of Night of the Living Dead 1990 remake part two next week, <laughs> <laughs> prefacing our Dawn of the Dead discussion. Uh, but for the time being, I think it's a solid, entertaining film. I give it a seven out of ten. Oh. Yeah, it's fine. There's some interesting elements in terms of like, oh, how they've changed it, how they've chosen chosen to change things. Ultimately, doesn't have the same atmosphere. I didn't like how the ending came out. Six out of ten. Yeah, hmm. well, that's fair. Uh, all right, more on that next week. Hmm. Oh, oh, oh! Hello, who is it? Don't open it, zombies. <laughs> Do you want to get the, get the door, Alan? Well, no, I've I've already boarded it up. I've I've nailed the door oh, over the door. Oh, Christ! Right, hang on. Let me just get the hammer. Shout, shout through the window. <laughs> All right, let's open the window. <laughs> it's just a little trick or treat. Sorry, what? <laughs> trick or treat. Trick or treat. <laughs> oh God, it's zombie Bond. <laughs> what, what are you seeing, zombie for you? Oh, he's got any window. Bastard. Oh no, it's just Sean Connery. He looks dead. <laughs> uh, of course. Yeah. What's the closest Sean Connery's been to a zombie movie? <laughs> League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? Is uh, there I someone in that who... Yeah, probably. Yeah. probably. Oh, Highlander, surely. Oh, Highlander, it. yes, of They're course. kind of immortal sort of thing. You've never know. seen Highlander? No, no. Is that the one where he's like one a best Spanish prince or something? Bash. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a Spanish. I've come to teach you Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what are you here for, Japanese Bond? Anyone who's new to this show, uh, Japanese <laughs> just Bond. Go is, <laughs> just, just go with it. Just go with it. You have to go back to like episode 68 or something when we covered the James Bond movie where James Bond dressed up as a Japanese fisherman to go undercover. <laughs> it's, it's a long-running thing, but basically he pops in from time to time to... Uh, Give us Patreon updates. I think that's his only purpose now. Is that is that why you're here now? Aye. We've got a couple of names off the Patreon, lads. Oh, we've got new new patrons on our Patreon. So our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash dimreturns, one dollar a month. One dollar. Can you imagine such a bargain? And for that, you get all sorts of extra content, which is mostly us talking, uh, reviewing new releases that are tied into the episodes we've talked about previously. Obviously, that's not a lot going on at the moment. So we've started doing all sorts of other things. For example, we've recently started doing a quiz called Whose List Is It Anyway? Which is where Sol finds the top 10 film lists of like famous people, like people's favourite films. And then we have to figure out who he's talking about. Um, what else do we do, Sol? Um, well, yeah, the, uh, we we do all sorts of little things like that. We, we've we just covered Bill and Ted. We, we put the odd yeah, bonus we... full-length episode up there. We did one covering Tenet, Tenet recently. Yeah. Uh, there's new... What's, what's the word? We put stuff up ahead of uh, release. Anything that's finished early goes up on there when we can. So The Purge, for example, we've recorded that uh, because there was going to be a new Purge movie out this year. It got delayed into 2021, so we put it up early on our Patreon um, and votes. We have polls as well. Yeah, listener polls. The last uh, last year, we let everyone vote for their choice of Halloween film. 
we haven't done that this year, obviously, but currently you can go and vote for which Pixar movie we're going to cover in an upcoming episode, and it is actually neck and neck at the time of recording. Ooh, between which? Monsters, Inc. and Wall-E, Calvin. They're both tied. We're also running a poll for classic films. Uh, We've got a list up there of the the top 10 AFI greatest films that we haven't already covered on the show. Mm Mm-hmm. And you can go and vote for which one of those you want. There's films like, uh, I think it's 12 Angry Men on there, Casablanca, Citizen Kane. It's all stuff like that, you know? Real classics. So, yeah. We do a lot on our Patreon. It's good fun. Yes. Hey, hey, lads. Well, these lads think, sure. We got a, uh, I think you know these lads, to be honest, guys. It's not that impressive. You got you got a Michael Godfrey on here. Oh, oh right, yeah. Oh, old school. Yeah. Hey. Hey, Someone thanks, Mike. Thank you very much. Hey, he does comment on our stuff every now and then on Facebook and stuff, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, he does. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Mike. Much there appreciated. You Hope you're enjoying the uh, the old Diminisodes on there. Hey, and someone else who's uh, hopefully enjoying that shape, Matt Dakes. Oh, ah! another blast from the past. Someone else we went to. Yes, and uh, it's, it's a it's a hat trick of those guys. Uh, Joe Johnston. Oh, right, yeah. I can't say this guy's name. Joe Johnson. The director of <laughs> Jumanji. <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> director of the, the Rocketeer, starring my pal, Timothy. <laughs> no, what's he? What is he? Starring Welsh Bond. You've never met him. You've never met Oh, shit. <laughs> I've met Welsh Bond. <laughs> Where do all the Bonds live? On an island somewhere. <laughs> James Bond Island. <laughs> I mean, there is actually an island called James Bond Island. It's in Thailand. It's uh, where Scaramanga <laughs> lived with Nick. Is that is that like how they they named that airport in the Caribbean the Ian Fleming Airport just to get a bit <laughs> of tourism? <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. Well, well, well. Thanks, Japanese Bond, for uh, stopping by. Oh no 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 problem, lads. But I did say trick or treat, so where's my sweets? Give him a penny. Oh, thanks. <laughs> All right, see you, lads. Oh, goodbye. It was nice oh, to that, see you again. Was, Good luck out easy, there. What what sweets do you think Sean Connery likes? I bet it's like something really crap. Fisherman's friends, like licorice, anisheed. Yeah, fisherman's <laughs> friends. Barley sugars. Anisheed. Uh, <laughs> No, you like I like shortbread, you fuckers. Give me a nice slice of shortbread. That's all I need. Uh, all right, see you, lads. See ya. Good, good luck. Hope you've got your provisions uh, and some uh, weapon. I'll I'll see him off with an open hand in his zombies out here. It'll be fine. Oh dear! Nail that door right. shut. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you to our new uh, supporters there. For making yeah, thanks, guys. Deal with Japanese Bond. So the other film we watched in terms of de- dealing with for this show was Diary of the Dead, mm. because that is in the Romero canon. That is set at the same time as Night of the Living Dead. Like that's the idea. We'll get to yeah. That in a so so Calvin, as a James Bond aficionado, will be familiar with the idea of a sliding time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really confuses some people. <laughs> yes. So Dawn of the Dead was made ten years after Night of the Living Dead, 
Now, a lot of people can't seem to wrap their head around the idea that the film is set three weeks after Night of the Living Dead and not ten years after it. Mm. Because they have updated all the fashion and the you know technology and stuff. And the same is true of all of George Romero's films. Day of the Dead is set, I think, three months or so after everything's kicked off. Land of the Dead is specifically set as uh, being three years after Night of the Living Dead. And yeah, Land of the Dead was the end of everything, really. And Romero kind of realised, I don't think I can go any further with this. So for his next film, Diary of the Dead, in 2007, he went back to the initial outbreak and made a film set concurrently with Night of the Living Dead, but also set in 2007, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But before we get into that film, Sol... Give us some zombie film history in terms of, like, what else did Night of the Living Dead spawn? I think the first example out there, certainly the first notable one, is a film called Night of the Living Dead 3D, which was uh, released in 2006, riding the wave of zombie renaissance with uh, films like 28 Days Later, Resident Evil, Shaun of the Dead, and the Dawn of the Dead remake before it. Yeah, someone put together a a remake of Night of the Living Dead in 3D. And I I never bothered to watch this film until we decided to do this podcast because I just thought I don't need to watch some shit, you know, crap remake from who gives a fuck. <laughs> but I finally, you know, I, I thought, well, I'll put the effort in for this podcast. And I have to say, I was very pleasantly surprised. It wasn't nearly as awful as it might have been. Hmm. It wasn't good, (laughs) but... High praise. I was expecting (laughs) something difficult to watch. This film is quite easy to sit through. In fact, dare I say, the first 15 minutes are legitimately quite entertaining, even quite effective horror in a couple of places. Uh, the first 15 minutes, of course, being Barbara and Johnny going to the cemetery and being attacked by zombies. Um, but they're in the cemetery, and I suppose the, the main difference with this film is that it all kind of surrounds a morgue. It's very weird. Basically, there's a character who is the mortician, Gerald Tovar Jr., played by a guy called Sid Haig, who's poised oh. as a bit of an old man badass with a yeah. shovel. You know, you know Sid Haig, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. From he's in a James Bond film, isn't he? Is that he, well, right? He is. Yes, but he's more known for being in Rob Zombie films. House of, House of a Thousand Corpses is the big one. He's a bit of a horror icon, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Cool. <laughs> so it's just for Sol to be like some guy. <laughs> well, he's he's okay in this, but he's not remarkable. But he's he's obviously their big get, you know. Yeah. And he's playing, like I say, a kind of old man badass archetype, going around with a shovel, trying to... Barbara runs in to the morgue, and he he asks her to leave, and she's like, but the dead are coming to life, and he's, you know, offing zombies left and right, like, I'm afraid, ma'am, you'll have to leave. Um, But basically, it turns out, it's some weird thing where he's perfected... I don't know, there's like toxic waste or something. Basically, the dead are coming back to life, and he's gone mad, and his dad's there, and he's keeping his dad as a zombie and trying to feed him and trap people and there's an outbreak that you can't control and it's it's not handled that well but yeah you're immediately dropped into a kind of people in a farmhouse situation Hmm. and then at the end it becomes a kind of him v them as he's trying to 
feed them to zombies, so it goes a bit different again. But it's largely the same basic thing. Uh, as I say, it's far, far better than I was expecting, but that doesn't mean it's good. Hmm. <laughs> uh, I gave it a 4 out of 10, for what that's worth. And um, this guy who uh, put this film together is a guy called Jeff Broadstreet, who directed it. Um, he followed the film up in 2012 with a sequel, Night of the Living Dead 3D Reanimation, one of the most confusingly named <laughs> films <laughs> in the world. Particularly as there's another remake called Night of the Living Dead Reanimation, which is that thing oh. where a load of people source animated five seconds of animation from people on the internet and oh, stick yeah. it. You know, they get the original audio and like animate the whole film. Oh, that sounds quite cool, um, actually. Yeah, they they did that in 2009, Night of the Living Dead reanimation. Uh but this is Night of the Living Dead 3D reanimation from 2012. Um which is a prequel to that film about Gerald Tovar explaining what he was doing in the morgue before. Inexplicably it's now a, a full-on comedy, horror comedy with like a a zombie baby in a mini fridge and stuff like that. Um, And they've replaced Sid Haig with a guy called Andrew Divoff, who I don't know, but he's he's very good. He seems to be in that um, low-budget horror territory. Hmm. But most notably, they add in his brother, played by Jeffrey Combs. Oh! Harold Tovar. (laughs) The reanimation. Now, as much as I love Jeffrey Combs, it sadly is not enough to salvage this piece of shit film (laughs) which just it just i don't know what they thought they were doing and there's a sequence where all the more like the morticians are like getting high because one of them is this kind of rock chick character they're getting high in the in the morgue with a dead body on the slab and then like they're so high they don't notice that the zombie gets up and like they're doing this thing of like passing the joint like back and forth down the three of them up against the wall and they pass it to the guy on the end and he turns around and passes it to the zombie who's now like sat next to him and and you kind of think oh they're doing a joke like they're gonna realize it's a zombie like scooby-doo style and go, ah! <laughs> but no what actually happens is the zombie just starts smoking the joint with them <laughs> and and they're too high to realise that that shouldn't be happening. So it's it's a terrible, terrible film. No real plot. It's just, a you know, the odd zombie turns up in the morgue. Harold Tovar whacks him with a shovel. Really shit. I gave it 2 out of 10. <laughs> Don't bother with it. Uh, then in 2012 as well, we got a film that friend of the show, Scott Chambers, worked on. Uh, Alan and I were actually chatting to him about this just the other night. Uh, Night of the Living Dead Resurrection, a Welsh remake. <laughs> I don't mean Welsh <laughs> language, it's in English, but uh, everyone has got a very heavy Welsh accent. It was uh, directed by a guy called James Plum and shot in Wales. And this, I mean, if you think Night of the Living Dead is low budget, watch this. It's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bad. Um... This whole thing, I mean, our, our friend of the show was saying about how they were shooting it on, like, little DV cameras, and, you know, it, it it's not a good-looking film. The makeup isn't terrible, but it, it, it feels like if you and I just made a film on our phones. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's pretty much what this is, except there's more actors in it, hmm. but they're not good. 
to give you a sense of what we're dealing with, when that man goes into the news agents, they've obviously tried to kit it out, much like Shaun of the Dead with all these details in the background, like newspaper headlines. Uh, But the way they've done that is there's a big A4 piece of paper, not a special font or anything, and it just says the dead rise question mark on a piece of paper. <laughs> so it's not it doesn't it doesn't it's not like the front page of a newspaper. It's not like they've written out the Times or <laughs> the, the the Wales Times and put the dead rise on it. It just has the words the dead rise on a piece of paper. An A4 piece of paper. Um Should we do it? Shall we make a should we do a, a version of Night of the Living Dead? <laughs> I think we should. I I think we should. I think yeah. Should we, should we do Night of the Living Dead with um, Japanese Bond, definitely not racist Liam Neeson, <laughs> and Calvin all have to hold up in a house together? <laughs> yeah, but I think anyway, this film is terrible. It's it's abysmal, and um, I I think this sums it up best of all. The ending of the film. Two characters make it through to the end. Uh, a young girl and... Not massively young, but, you know, teenage girl and her mum. And these kind of redneck, gun-toting redneck characters turn up, even though it's in the middle of Wales. You know, they've got Welsh accents and, like, camo gear on, <laughs> so you can buy, right? These are guys who would have access to guns. They're driving round in a van, and uh, they throw them down on the ground and say, like, Are they clean? That's the worst accent I've kind of... <laughs> it was good. Are they, are they clean? That one's clean. I can't do Welsh. Oh no, it's getting worse. Uh, they go, are they... <laughs> they go, are they, are they clean? She's been bitten. Uh, and then just immediately shoot the mum. And the, the, the woman left's like... <gasps> and, then, and then the guy goes, she's clean. Very clean. And then... This is the final line of the film, and I had to rewind a few seconds to make sure I hadn't, like, misheard it. And I think this sums up the film. The final line of the film is, stick her in the rape van. Let's get Jesus out of here. Christ. Oh, my God. So that's the end of your film. It's just a close-up of her going, <laughs> as they say, stick her in the rape van. I don't know what point they're trying to make. It's It's not, like, artistically justified. They obviously thought that was a cool twist for the end of their film. So it's terrible. One out of ten. Uh, absolutely awful. Hmm. One of the worst films I've ever seen Ooh. in my entire life. Um, uh, then there's there's another remake from 2014, just called Night of the Living Dead. I I couldn't find any way of of watching this film. I don't think it's ever been officially released to the to the public in any capacity, even if you were willing to spend money on it. But hmm. You should, in fact, guys, right now, get on YouTube, type in Night of the Living Dead 2014. I want you to watch the trailer and see what I mean. Ooh, okay. This film screened in a film festival, so it does exist. Uh, it is out there, but I don't think it's ever been made commercially available, and I don't think you could get people to pay money for this. What was it, 2014? Yeah, 2014, from a company called Shattered Image Films. This this should explain what I've been dealing with because this is the level of these films. But this looks possibly like the worst one. So right, right. Let's Check it out. go, Alan. On three, yeah. one, two, three. Oh dear, that was a bad logo. <laughs> Shattered images <laughs> films. <laughs> okay. Okay, so we've got. Oh. Okay. So. <laughs> 
So we've got a, a girl who appears to be 20 or something, but it looks mm. like she's playing a seven-year-old yeah, or an eight-year-old. She's, she's picking old, flowers yeah. with her hair. She looks like she's just wandered out of a high school frame. production of The Wizard of it's Oz. zooming mm. in. That's a, that's a digital zoom. And now we're into slow motion. Oh, I think this is the worst slow motion I've ever seen in wow. a film. It's obviously not oh. shot in slow motion. Oh, and then it goes black and white. Oh. <laughs> So the slow motion is like this blur effect. It's awful. It's horrible. Are they doing a it's kind like of inverted Wizard of Oz thing with this? I'm getting, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. From colour to black and white in this case. And the shot of the zombies in black and white don't look that bad. But then we just have random shots of other people just like chatting. And it just looks like YouTubers. Just completely <laughs> like framed a... completely arbitrarily. Some of these shots, there's no, doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to the frame. Yeah. And uh, then some more shots of zombies. Start lighting. <laughs> There's no lighting involved. Oof! Wow. Chad Zuva. Are you sure that was made? That that yeah. feels like someone's made a trailer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I know what you mean. Um, IMDb says that it had screened at the not a film festival actually. It just says it screened at a premiere in Ohio. Which to me sounds like they did finish the film and uh, managed to screen it one night only for everyone involved to go and watch it. So that's that one. And last of all, but not quite least, there is Night of the Living Dead Darkest Dawn. Darkest Dawn. Hmm. Yes. Which is a a 2015 animated remake of Night of the Living Dead. Hmm. And when I heard that, I thought, oh, cool. (laughs) But someone just put the film in After Effects and put on the uh, animation. <laughs> no, no, no. It's no. It's it's a newly recorded audio oh. featuring Tony Todd, Ooh. who they've got into to play Ben again, huh. horror icon. So they're working with a bit of money, not much, but <laughs> not an insignificant amount. Um, I mean, we've spoken about bad CGI in this show before and compared it to PS2 graphics. But, like, I am not exaggerating. This looks like a PS2 game. (laughs) And not one that has been, you know, had care and time put into it. It, The animation is abysmal. What's it called again? Is is any of it on YouTube? Yeah, again, just look up the trailer. Night of the Living Dead, Darkest Dawn. You'll see what I mean. Now, when I watch this film... And and I'm not exaggerating, am I? There's no um, hyperbole. It looks like a PS2 game. It looks dreadful. It looks like The Sims, or <laughs> yeah, and and it doesn't work Oof. to its strengths because the 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 texture on the CG models is so low. It kind of gets away with it in like long shots mm. in you know in the streets of a city where you don't see the characters up close. But they have like severe close-ups on their <laughs> face and stuff. And you can see the lack of like proper lip sync and the the lack of texture and the the corners on their head, and it's it's just abysmal. I mean, the trailers looking at it now, some of the best shots. Yeah, got lots of explosions. It's, it's worse than that. Yeah, it's it honestly it, it's yeah. it's abysmal animation to the point that when I watched it, I assumed it was one guy had animated this film in their bedroom as like a passion project, but no. This was a proper production. There's three directors on this film. Goodness. It had money behind it. it it's like a, a proper film from a production company. Some kind of money laundering. I did just see at the end of that, it said a Simon West production. 
Is that the Simon West who made Con Air and Lara Croft Tomb Raider? <laughs> I'm guessing Ooh, it's not. Very possibly. <laughs> I mean, I hope not. Shall I look it up? Oh, no, Simon it is on IMDb. It is, it's on his IMDb. He's the producer. Yeah. yeah, I guess it is. Well, there you go. It had money, and I just don't know what... <sighs> I don't know how this film happened. I've just skipped to like the end credits because I was like, I want to see how many people worked on this. It does have like a proper end yeah. credits. In the special thanks, they thank Google and Microsoft. <laughs> like, <laughs> what did they for using the engine? Maybe like probably yeah. They probably used Google a couple of times. <laughs> um, the acting in this film is appalling. It's it's like the actors didn't know they were being recorded. Like honestly, it, it's. They mumble. You can't hear what they're saying half the time. It, it sounds like they did one take of every line. Uh, the sound mix is awful. And there's this bizarre thing where there's just like random flashes of red and yellow in the film, like every few minutes, that are obviously some kind of weird stylistic choice to be scary or something. But it looks like it's cut together from like cutscenes in a video game and they've just had to like splice them together. It's it's the weirdest production. Oh wow. Yeah, they've got some just looking at the cast now. They've got Tony Todd, Danielle Harris, who was in a few of the Halloween yeah, films, yeah. Bill Mosley from Texas Chainsaw. Yeah, Massacre. Bill Mosley. Yeah. yeah, it's not a bad yeah. sort of assembly of uh, people from the genre. Yeah. So I still gave it a one out of ten hmm. and it is still one of the worst films I've ever seen. But it's better than the Welsh version. (laughs) (laughs) But a a baffling affair. I don't know what this film is. Anyway, I think that's it conclusively for Night of the Living Dead remakes for now. Wow. (laughs) But uh, George A. Romero, of course, did his own line of cash-ins. And, you know, artistically justified. He made Dawn of the Dead, which we're going to be talking about next week. He made Day of the Dead, which we're going to be talking about the following week. And Land of the Dead. And then he decided to, as I said before, go back to the start, make a film set contemporously with Night of the Living Dead. Diary of the Dead, Mm. from 2007, at the start of the zombie outbreak. This film is significant within this franchise for being shot found footage style it is it largely predated the boom in found footage movies because i think cloverfield in 2008 was cloverfield um really triggered a new wave of found footage movies this is 2007 the year before that it it seemed to somehow anticipate that that was something that we were going to have a lot of I, I love that this film has got so many ideas and things to say. Mm. I don't think it really comes together. You know, it's put together as a kind of critique of the internet, and it's arguably incredibly ahead of its time. It, it really, I think, did predict a lot of issues with the internet that back in 2007, I, I remember, myself included, people were kind of laughing at George A. Romero, like, come on, old man. <laughs> You know, it was, it was that kind of like old man yells at cloud. Like, mm-hmm. you don't get the internet. You don't get why it's good. Ten years on, oh no, he was absolutely right. The idea that anyone can put Thank anything you. on the internet is very uh, problematic. Um, and that is what this film's about, but it doesn't necessarily do the best job of exploring it. 
It's a messy film. I wonder film. what that ending tag was about, where they just show some rednecks like shooting zombies, and she's like, oh, it's terrible. <laughs> oh, okay, so it's it's a <laughs> the internet is horrible thing. Mm. Yeah, and 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 I mean, it, you know, I I read interviews with George Romero at the time, which were him saying, you know, anyone can start a blog and just write whatever they want on it, and that's scary. And he's absolutely right. That is the modern the problem of our time, really, isn't it? Other Do you know than what though? That's not the problem. The problem is anyone can write that or, or put something on the internet. The problem is that other people will see it and then believe it or just take it as mm. read. Well, this is the issue that th- this film doesn't get into that. This film doesn't get into the idea of misinformation. It it, it flirts with yeah. it, but then you need to have a character say, "I've seen on the internet that the bites don't hurt you." Or I've seen on the internet you- that you need to rub olive oil on the dead and they come back to life. Or I've seen on the internet that this place is a safe haven. Let's go there. Ah, oh, it's full of zombies. You know, it- it's that's what it needed to do. And it doesn't really engage with it in that way. It's just this weird kind of f- superficial fear of the internet. <laughs> but I don't know what the film was trying to do, trying to say. It's the the setup is it's you know a student film group. They're they're making a crappy horror film in the woods when they the news a mummy yeah, movie. And the news comes out, but the whole thing is shot like on this guy's camera. But then you know for whatever reason he keeps his camera running um, even when they're not shooting. Well, it's 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 a weird film in that it it rejects a lot of the found footage tropes out there, but then it it kind of goes out of its way to have like more realism in other ways. You know, th- this film acknowledges the battery life on the camera in a way that a lot of found yeah. footage films don't. Uh, the characters have to like charge up the camera, but then they edit the film together and have a musical score over it. And the character at the start says, "I've put music over the film." because I wanted it to be like a real film, to scare you. (laughs) And I like that they've gone for a cinematic approach with music rather than, you know, realism. But I don't see the point of doing the handheld thing if you're going to do that, though. Exactly, exactly. And I don't like you like telling me that you've done it to then justify it. Just put music on it. Mm. Whatever. (laughs) Like, who gives a shit? Yeah, we accept that someone's found the footage and edited it together. Like we we know we understand that and the concept. I don't know. The the problem with this film is there's just an air of pretentiousness about it. And I think that's partly down to the the protagonist and the performance. Mm, who would you say is the protagonist? Um what's her name? Oh, the I, woman one. Oh, I I I would have pointed Jason as the protagonist. The cameraman. Yeah. Yeah, I guess he arguably is. I just think because she's the narrator that it's kind of framed from her perspective in a lot of ways, isn't it? Yeah. Hmm. I mean, it is very much an ensemble piece. Um, it's following this group of students. Uh, there's there's a Texan one. Her entire personality is based around the fact that everyone on <laughs> set seemed to think she could do a Texan accent, even though she can't. <laughs> uh, she is, of course, Canadian, like everyone else in this cast. Don't mess with Texas. Uh, the one exception to everyone being Canadian in this film is Scott Wentworth, who is an American actor doing a British accent. <laughs> mm. um, it's not a bad British accent, but it's also obviously not how that person speaks. It's obviously <laughs> fake, and it hinders the guy's performance. Andrew Maxwell, emeritus. Nowhere to go, nothing to do. And I'm not with anybody. 
Yeah, look, if we spoke in Night of the Living Dead 1990 about the two-dimensional nature of some characters <laughs> in George Romero's writing, I think this is the most perfect example of it. Because he's had an idea for a fun character, he's given him, like, two personality traits, and that's it. Go on, Alan, what, so what this are is, those traits? Well, this is what the information we find out about him, about his backstory. He's obviously English, got an English accent. Um, he went to Eton. Where, amongst other things, I'm sure he he did archery. Um, he served in some sort of war. Uh, it's not specified which <laughs> war, but he's definitely got <laughs> Probably a the Falklands, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and then at some point, he must have moved to America or and became a, a, a film tutor. And an alcoholic. And an alcoholic, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which So that's the backstory of him. Um, that sounds like a fascinating character. Uh, unfortunately, it's expressed... Just mostly with the alcoholism and shooting people with arrows. <laughs> and, and, and he loves Charles Dickens as well. He nearly comes on <laughs> oh, that yeah, tale of two cities that he pulls out of the bookshelf towards the end. Just He's to like, show how British tale he of is. two cities. Oh my goodness. He's getting very excited about it. What you've described is a standard issue Quentin Tarantino protagonist. <laughs> and I think it's interesting because it's just it's just not quite done well enough, is it? I think all the cast are terrible. Yeah, I think yeah. every single yeah, no, I, cast I member agree. in this I, is I, terrible. And I know that they... I read something about that they looked for a lot of um, stage actors because obviously they were filming this, you know, in long takes and all that kind of stuff. They well, needed, as they, as they like did they with Night actors. of the Living Dead, you know? They they were largely... Uh, Dwayne well. Jones was a, a stage actor they they gave his first film role to. and, and uh... But here, it's you, they, they feel like they are playing to the back of the audience. Like yeah. some of them, in particular, like the tech. Some of the line deliveries are just oh, really poor. Yeah. I, I thought the quality of acting was really bad. The writing doesn't help because no. I love George Romero. I think he's quite a good writer in a lot of ways. But I've not seen a lot of evidence of that. I think he's a very economical writer, and I, th- you know, he bashes scripts out. He always did this. This film was churned, you know, turned around very quickly. But I, I, I think he needs to be paired with people who know how to work with it, you know. And this film just—it's all the worst traits of his talents on show. Um, the bit that I cringe at every time is at the end of the film, they kind of bookend it with. So at the start of the film, we open on seeing a, a mummy movie being shot with a guy dressed up as a mummy attacking a woman out in the woods. At the end of the film, that same guy has turned into a zombie and is chasing and attacking that same actor who was running away from him. And that's a nice bit of symmetry in the film. It's quite a nice way to make a film. But mm-hmm. then the character turns to character literally turns to camera and says, This is just like your stupid mummy movie. And it's it's delivered so badly and it's such a lack of like respect for the audience to think <laughs> that we could piece that together ourselves. It just ruins it. Yeah, there's some, there's no relation for these characters to reality or like how people would act in a situation. There's yeah, yes, it like completely agree. For example, there's one bit quite early on where there's a woman, the woman driving the RV that they're all in. You know, some zombies come at the thing and she runs them over. Now, she doesn't even hesitate to run them over. She's just like, yeah, straight over them. But then, you know, the fact that she would kind of do that in the moment and then she feels really guilty about it and she's feeling really torn up about it, that's a really nice character thing that we could explore. Yeah. 
I think it's actually handled really nicely, that bit. Yeah, instead what happens is she wanders off into the distance, the other characters we took are talking, and then she shoots herself in the head. Yeah. Mm, and that's as much as we get from that. It's like, that takes something. It, it takes quite a lot to kill yourself, actually. <laughs> and, and, and in those circumstances, like you can totally believe how she would feel really torn up about it. So if you're going to do that as a character thing, you need to do it properly. But then, but then another good element is that she doesn't die. They then have to drag her to a hospital. They're trying to deal with yeah. her, and that's the problem. I like, I quite like that as a concept. But again, it's just yeah. But then, but then you do you go to a hospital in a zombie movie. It should be carnage. It should be full to the brim of zombies. Instead, it's like everyone got word that zombies were on the way and vacated, and there's mm-hmm. like two zombies in this abandoned building. Mm-hmm. There's there's a weird sense of humour in this film as well that comes into play, which feels kind of odd. I mean, it does exist in the other films, but it, it, it's it got the kind of slasher movie fun kill thing about itself. But the problem is, that's the only point really at which this film's sense of humour comes out, is when they like pick up a defibrillator and then melt a zombie's <laughs> eyeballs out of its yeah. head using the the thing amped up and it's just like well that that's tonally out of whack with the rest of this film there's a there's a bit i was trying to figure out if they were going for comedy with an amish guy now oh, yeah yes. well now the amish guy is a a fan favorite and i i must say i think it is a highlight of the film i think the film is very enjoyable when he comes along and takes part it's a shame he's not in it for longer yeah. honestly well george romero is great at coming up with these fun little set pieces and characters and and this film could have been more of that because another thing i love in this film which i'll talk about in a minute is all of the kind of found videos off the internet that the characters supposedly downloaded and cut in in amongst the story um but i'll talk about that in a minute um yeah there's an amish guy they encounter he's he's deaf and mute is that is he deaf? Yeah, he he's is deaf. deaf isn't he? yeah. yeah, he's got that little blackboard around his neck that he sort of has to use chalk to write on. Yeah, and he he's been going around blowing up the zombies with sticks of dynamite, and he's he's mm. great fun when he comes into play and joins them. But he's he's only in it for about five ten minutes, and then he offs himself. But it feels like you've just changed the channel and you're watching a different film. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there is that bit where he blows up the zombies and then he gets sort of like showered with the uh, earth or something. And what does he do? Does he sort of he's holding up? A s- it's a- he, he like he's he holds up a sign that says something like "Hi, my name's Tim" or something. And like yeah. it's like a wily e. coyote moment where he's <laughs> holding up a sign while all the body parts fall around him. It's mm. yeah, it's like a different film. I think in another silly fun horror comedy, it would be great, but. Yeah, it's mm. just not what this film is, or has been up until this point, or is after he leaves. A lot of the deaths uh, fall into that category as well, including his, where he is attacked from behind. So he smashes a scythe through his own head, so that it goes through the skull of the zombie as well, because you know skulls are made of cheese or something. That just scythe just look, Alan, <laughs> right. You you have a problem with that. I mean, yeah, it's not massively realistic, but you should try watching The Walking Dead sometime because characters just like poke a knife through zombies' foreheads through a fence. Like the, it's like their heads are made out of fucking butter. It's ridiculous. It really winds me up, actually. At least, <laughs> at least in this film, they're making a show of him putting some force into it. 
But like I say, I do love all the found footage videos that are cut in. The idea is that the internet's up and running, and and I love I love seeing the little shots of like a guy who's hanged himself off a bridge, but he's turned into a zombie, and the the redneck shooting the zombies, and the news reports, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and there's a sequence with a clown that I think is one of the best scenes in a horror movie of the noughties. It it's just <laughs> That scene is so perfectly put together as a dark, scary bit of humour where there's a a kid crying at a birthday party and the clown comes in and the kid's like scared of the clown as we all are and the the parent goes to like take the nose off the clown to, to go, look, it's just a normal person, don't be scared. And they accidentally take the zombie's nose off and there's blood and then the zombie attacks him. I, I think that sequence is amazing but it's you know it's silly (laughs) don't you think yeah i think i I was just happy with silly the amazing didn't come into it no i think it's scary zombie clown terrifying a child it's it's i think it's great i think i'd be fine with that like these um sort of gory kills and these moments of humor and, and and whatnot don't quite sit well with me because of the whole found footage thing i think because if you make a, something in found footage that tells me yeah. that you're going for some kind of realism or or, or something yeah. and I, yeah i guess you and the nose coming off of... doesn't make any sense unless the zombie's been decaying for a while yeah no i know <laughs> it's silly it's, yeah well i mean yeah no, no, well, I, I, you know, let's so the logistics of the body stuff, more just the found footage to me, like, I mean, Pinnacle is Blair Witch Project, which I think is an amazing film, and just found footage done perfectly. Yes, yes, um, uh, and I check out our Blair Witch Project episode, yes. featuring an interview with the director, Ed Sanchez. Yeah. And I don't think that any, I can't think of anything that's come afterwards that has managed that at all, and it, it is down to even the quality of the camera, like, this is obviously being shot on a quite, you know... Uh, high-end digital camera that would not be available to film students, I don't think. And every now and then we get shots from other cameras where it's obviously just been downgraded digitally and and whatnot. So I just, I don't buy into that aspect of it. So I'm kind of like, well, what's the point of doing it then? Uh, I also think we we don't really play into the POV element of it. Yeah. There's a few moments where he's like, "Oh, gets shocked by something," because but we're, like we're seeing what they're seeing, so we we, yeah. we should be right in there with them. But yeah, quite I, I, I I agree. Mm. I love found footage horror as a concept. I think it has the potential to be phenomenal, but so few films have done it well, and sadly, it's usually just used as a, a technique to allow low budget films to get made on a lower budget (laughs) um you know something of a crutch or an excuse for films being a bit crap zombie found footage has of course been done very well with wreck wreck in fact came out the same year as this film oof oh that's embarrassing (laughs) yeah Just on that point, sorry, I, I just because because I was thinking about this when I was watching the film, and it, if you didn't tell me that this was Romero, I wouldn't know, and I don't know if that's a backhanded compliment to sort of say that this feels like it's being made by someone very young mm. and mm. just starting out and you know learning the ropes kind of thing. I I do yeah no I I get what you're saying. I do say I have a great deal of admiration for this film because you're talking about a man who was, what, in his 60s, I think, late 60s when he made this, who is still Mm. being innovative and trying new things and 
pushing mm. the boundaries of what he's doing. And so I, I do have a great deal of respect for what he was trying to do. And, you know, I I, I feel like I've been incredibly downbeat about it, um, which is probably more echoing you guys. Um, <laughs> I I can sit through this film very happily. You know, I can watch it, but I, I you know... I, I'll say right now, I think this is a, a real blemish on the franchise, but that's not to say I hate it outright. I mean, you, can, you can't just brush over the fact that the film's crap, though, because it's, um, <laughs> it's just... The characters just don't make any sense. It's badly made. It's, you know, the, the, the acting isn't good. And, you know, there's a bit where... Mm. The, basically, the whole, the whole thing is the characters go to a place, find zombies there, kill them all and clear the place and then go, oh, we should get out of here. Let's go to another place. And then they go to another place and kill zombies there. And it's just that eight times. And then at one point they yeah. they they get sort of caught by a bunch of black people. For some reason, all the white people have gone, but black people have left, uh, left in this town. It felt like that was going to go somewhere. It didn't. Mm. Like quite a, over and above the race stuff, <laughs> which I don't think was really meant anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, like it felt like those characters were going to come back at the end or something. Like or, or something would happen. Anything might happen. Yeah, and nothing happened. I mean, I I I think the film is intentionally constructed as a series of tangents. It's very episodic by design, and and yeah, I I think that potential uh, that that has potential to be great but no i agree it's not particularly done well but i find it like i say i find it very watchable and easy to sit through i'm not brushing over how you know <laughs> it has weaknesses what happens at the end they they go in the panic room they all they all get attacked and killed and a few of them lock themselves in a panic room while the other zombies that can... alcoholic teacher lives yeah. which i was baffled yeah, yeah, yeah. by and a few a few zombies kind of encroach in from outside. You see him on the CCTV. What is some of his last dialogue? It's something like the dawn and something else, what all old men fear, oh, or something yeah. like that. It's really like, I don't like the light, I like the darkness. <laughs> I can hide in the The morning darkness. and the mirror, just... what all old men fear. <laughs> oh, that, that's it, yes. The morning and the mirror, fuck off. <laughs> oh my god. I just, I hated him so I think much. I quite liked him, actually. Mornings and mirrors only serve to terrify old men. Well, look, I I agree. I I think it's a weak film, very messy, a lot blemishes on it. But as I say, I I can watch it very happily. I don't particularly love it, but I don't hate it either. It's just kind of there for me. Um, I give it a, and this is very generous, and it's a very low one of these, but I give it a six out of ten. Mm. Um, I'll I'll go next. I really didn't like it. it I I think I had seen it once before because I've seen all of these Romero films once before. Uh, it might have been way back at university, something like that. And maybe I got a bit more out of this film then because I remembered liking it more than uh this time, which I I didn't enjoy the experience of at all. I thought that the um the preamble sort of stuff where it's like we're seeing like news 
crew sort of shots of people oh, being yeah. taken out of a building and stuff. I thought that that was quite effective up until a point. Mm. Um, and that was probably my favourite bit of the film. Otherwise, I just I didn't like any of the characters. There's no drama that I'm interested in between them. And as a tense sort of gory thrill ride, it didn't work on that level either. So I think it, a, a failure. Um, three out of ten from me. Well, I think it was poor. I think it's quite embarrassing, frankly, considering romero's lineage that like you say about it being a found footage thing and like trying a new things okay i'll grant you that but it's a swing and a miss um and it's a bad miss it suffers all the problems that found footage films at their worst suffer plus all the other problems some of them no all of them (laughs) no no you're not going to get motion sickness watching this one are you but though that's what i want from a found footage film because that's what it should be I don't want well framed. Oh, well, that's not shots. all the problems. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the big problems with found footage is that it's like there's no thought put into the framing, and it's just crap, shaky camera. That's not what this is. So it's not. All but that's what problems. I want from a found footage film because that's what it should be. Yeah, but that's a different. It's not all the problems. That's all I'm saying. I don't know. You seem to be saying the exact opposite of what you say you're saying. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the point is, it's crap. Three out of ten. Now you know how I feel. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on, look. On, on a scale from one to like ten, it's a three. To, well, no, on a scale of this to Halloween six, for example. I mean, look, it's not. Oh, it could well, be worse. Yeah, yeah, it could be a two out of ten or a one out of ten. <laughs> yeah, like Halloween six. Have you? So, Sol, you've missed one of the major films out um uh, fred 2 night of the living fred i mean, I mean <laughs> that came up in my uh, which which does actually if you search for night of the living dead 3d i believe fred 2 night of the living dead uh, night of the living fred comes up in the predictive search before night of the living dead 3d actually <laughs> is that fred is in the squeaky voice yes. former famous youtube oh wow it's the okay. second of mm. the the trilogy i believe of fred films yeah <laughs> <laughs> Have you covered those on an episode? I think Alex Winter made one so well, I mean, look, if, if if you really want to get into this, you know, there's a there's a short film out there called Night of the Living Bread, um, <laughs> which is just someone remade like it's it's people running around a cemetery and driving, but someone off camera throwing slices of bread at them. <laughs> Quite like the sound of that. Hmm. Well, what what are we watching for next week, Sol? Uh, so next week we will be picking up uh, with Survival of the Dead. Uh, as I said before, George Romero at one point was considering a direct continuation of Diary of the Dead, but instead he inexplicably settled on a weird thing where we follow one of the characters seen very briefly in Diary of the Dead that they encounter on a story of their own and then of course we will be covering the big the big dog dawn of the dead and Mm. its remake Mm. two of the most significant zombie movies ever made Mm. so that is the first of our epic zombie trilogy thanks for joining us calvin oh no no it's been lovely um i look forward to the next uh, two weeks
Sticker in the right van. Let's get out of here.